Welcome to this episode of Nuance, a podcast that encourages Christ followers to live faithfully at work, especially in regard to the hot topics of the public square. This season, we're exploring the ever-growing issue of gender identity. As Christ followers, we have to do better and be better, while confidently knowing that the gospel speaks to our most difficult conversations. My name is Case Thorpe. On behalf of my co-host, Crossland Stewart, and myself, welcome to Nuance. I want to welcome everybody today to the Nuance podcast, where we are with our guest, Ryan Anderson. Ryan, thank you for being with us. Sure thing. It's a pleasure to be with you. Remind our listeners or viewers to like us and subscribe. It always helps us to uh, reach more people. Well, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson is president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, former senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, author of numerous books on marriage, religious freedom, and most recently, When Harry Became Sally. Uh, wow, Ryan. I mean, very compelling, very powerful book. And even kicked off of Amazon which was quite an experience, I'm sure. His research yes. has been cited. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. His research has been cited by two U.S. Supreme Court justices and Supreme Court cases, and uh, he is all over the media at various times speaking for uh, traditional values. Undergraduate at Princeton, doctoral degree at Notre Dame. And Ryan, you are a prolific tweeter. You are. <laughs> And I'll admit, I have so enjoyed you tweeting the building of the barn on your farm. Can you tell Thank us about you. that? I mean, it, it was, um, sure. So we moved, we used to live um, in a house, uh, it's like one of the alley houses on Capitol Hill. So, you know, we were probably three blocks um, uh, from the nation, from the Capitol building itself. And, you know, you have the A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four, and then they put this extra row of homes oh, wow. in between. Uh, so it was, you know, the alley. And then once we started having kids, uh, we realized this wasn't going to work. Um, <laughs> we didn't have a yard or anything. We, we literally, it was like where everyone left their their trash cans. So we moved out. We're 50 miles outside of uh, Washington, D.C. Um, on a 30-acre uh, property. And, you know, we've been little by little transforming it into a farm. Mm. Um, you know, we put up some fencing and then we added some, you know, originally it was just like T-posts that my wife and I hammered in ourselves. And we eventually got like professional fencing installed and we added waterers. And and then this past, uh, more or less, it was like throughout the spring and the summer, um, uh, we built a barn because we now have, um, let me see if I can get all the animals. We got um, chickens, rabbits, ducks, goats, yeah. sheep pigs and a cow. <laughs> um, and, you know, as we, as we are recording earlier this morning, um, we uh, slaughtered um, two of the pigs and we'll be slaughtering oh uh, three lambs um, oh, later this wow. afternoon. So, Oh, we don't um, want to alienate yeah. any of our lamb lover uh, <laughs> listeners, but um, have you ever, well, I mean, it's, have you ever, it's seen... more humane. I, I promise you that the way that these animals both, um, the life that they led yeah, and then yeah. the way in which um, uh, uh, they died was much more humane here <laughs> than it would be with any factory farming. Or So if, if you if you enjoy eating bacon or lamb chops, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a much better way. And, and for us, like what we have found, like um, it's a great way of raising kids as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our children were there uh, this morning. They'll be, you know, they, they, they see that part of the life cycle 
uh, is both mm. birth and death. And then um, it's also that, you know, they know that their food doesn't just come from a store. I mean, I think for for me growing up, you know, where, where do you, where did your food yeah, come from? Sure. It comes from the giant or the A&P, the super fresh, something yeah, like that. Publix. Whereas here they actually, they know um, what it takes to um, produce meat. And um, yeah, so. Well, keep the pictures coming. It's been, it's I'm, been an experience. I'm living on Green Acres with you through Twitter. So it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> well, we're we're not here to talk about animal slaughtering, but uh, we are here to address a very uh, pertinent issue, an important one, I think, particularly in our society and especially uh, for Christ followers. So um, the transgender movement is out there and it is happening. And they were, we're focusing this season on how we, and particularly our workplaces, are faithfully representing Christ, whether we're in a position of, of hiring, or if we're the boss, or if we're um, in the system somewhere at a workplace, how do we uh, manage and move into this brave new world? Um, Crossland's going to kick us off. Ryan, and thank you again for taking time this morning. Um, I do think it's really important for Christians to be dialoguing about this and by way of doing that, hopefully become more thoughtful. And um, and at the end of the day, it's all about loving our neighbor well. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it would be great if the audience got to know you a little bit. So I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself. You've already told us about your barn and uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. But in particular, how did you get interested in all the gender identity issues. Sure. I mean, so the, um, there's a short version and a long version of the story and I'll give you like (laughs) the medium, uh, which is that, so I went to a, um, uh, K through 12 school, uh, in Baltimore city that was rather, um, progressive socially, you know, left side of the political uh, spectrum. Um, you know, I was one of, you know, maybe two people in my graduating class that went to church um, every Sunday. Wow. Um, and then I went to college at Princeton and, and it was really at Princeton that I first ever met, um, serious devout Christians who were also, um, intellectually serious. Right. And so bringing both faith mm-hmm. and reason into harmony. Um, and while I was an undergraduate, uh, my undergraduate years were when president Bush issued his executive order on stem cell research, uh, prohibiting the destruction of embryonic human beings for research purposes. It was when the attacks of 9-11 took place and it was when the Goodridge decision came down. Goodridge was the first state Supreme Court decision that redefined marriage. And so what I found just as like an undergraduate and still being friends with all of my friends from high school was that my friends couldn't even understand why I believed what I believed about bioethics, about marriage, about um, just war theory. And you know, I increasingly found myself in dialogue, in conversation um, with classmates, with teammates, just with friends, both at Princeton's campus and back at home during the summers, during breaks, about many of these very difficult questions. And so then one of my first jobs after college um, was as Robbie George's research assistant. You know, he's oh, like the one outspoken wow. conservative professor that would be fantastic. at Princeton. And it was wonderful. And, and I did research for him on um, embryo ethics, bioethics, and research for him on marriage. And then to speed up to your actual question, um, very quickly, um, uh, as um, 
you know, think the, the acronym is LGBT. For 20 years, we were discussing the LGB part of the acronym. We were having discussions, right. debates, um, voting, and then Supreme Court uh, votes, you know, uh, rulings on marriage. You can think of that as the LGB part of the acronym. And then I would say, um, as the Supreme Court first ruled in 2013 on the Federal Defense of Marriage Act case, and then 2015 on the state marriage amendments, that's when you started to see the pivot from the LGB to the T part of the acronym from the various activist organizations, right? They said, look, we're, we've won on what they would refer to as marriage equality, and now we're going to move to transgender rights. Um, and so for me, it was much more of a, you know, I've done some work on bioethics, I've done some work on marriage and human sexuality. And now, like, the next question where, you know, I have friends, family members who can't even understand why I believe what I believe, it's now on um, questions about our embodiment as male or female. Uh, and so that's when I started doing a bunch of research um, that, you know, went into the um, the, the the writing and then uh, the publishing of When Harry Became Sally. Um, so that's kind of how it, you know, came about was, um, I, I would just say one one other thing is that it's not just on this issue that, you know, my friends, family members, colleagues couldn't understand why I believe what I believe. I also noticed that the church itself, um, uh, people weren't able to connect um, uh, what they know to be true as a matter of re revelation from what we can know through reason, through science, uh, through medicine, through philosophy. And they couldn't connect kind of um, gut instincts and kind of like deep faith commitments with articulation, right? They couldn't give voice to it. And they would say, look, I think there's something not quite right with puberty blocking drugs, yeah. something not quite right with um, high school males um, competing um, on the women's teams, but they weren't able to fully explain it, right? And so the book was also meant to kind of equip uh, fellow believers mm -hmm. on why, you know, what's been revealed to us um, isn't just like a divine imposition, right? An arbitrary God, you know, issuing edicts from on high, but that this corresponds to human nature. It corresponds to reality. Um, and so I thought that, you know, that dual purpose of equipping um, believers, but also then reaching people um, who don't yet uh, see eye to eye. Well, Ryan, I'm so grateful for your book. And um, that's why we're doing this podcast too. We're wanting to equip people so that they can get these categories in their head. Just this morning, I had breakfast with a group of guys from my church, uh, business owners, principals, and firms, and they just didn't get it. They didn't understand why it was something to focus upon. Uh, there was one individual that just said, you just need to be nice. And I'm not opposed to that. Certainly, uh, we're called to love. In fact, that's one of the things you write uh, in here, in your preface, you say, and I, I really appreciate you write this, writing this, we need to respect the dignity of people who identify as, as transgender. Um, I, I believe in a lot of the conversation on this, that point is missed. We are perhaps sometimes right. as Christ followers lumped into that category of haters and standing on the corner yelling at people when um, you, I appreciate you lead off with, we need to show great respect to people that struggle with gender dysphoria. Yeah. And, and so I would say what, what I've seen, the reason I emphasize that is I can see it go wrong and I've seen it go wrong in um, two different directions. You know, one group would say, well, because we oppose transgender ideology, therefore, you know, it's okay to kind of um, belittle and demean 
people who identify as transgender, right? And, and they, um, uh, and you can see there's, you know, especially on Twitter, right? There's no end of, you know, nasty stuff and ugly stuff on Twitter. Uh, sometimes Twitter isn't real life, but in real life, this also happens, right? And so you can see people, because I'm opposed um, to the ideology, um, I'm going to behave in less than charitable, less than Christian ways towards people um, to who my mind have been victimized by the ideology, sure. right? So that's one way. The other way is, well, because I'm going to respect the inherent dignity of everyone, every one of God's children, and therefore I'm going to respect the dignity of someone who identifies as transgender, that means I need to affirm their identity, or I need to affirm the choices that they've made, or I need to affirm the ideology um, that they've been um, victimized by. And I think that's also a mistake, right? And so, so the challenge here is, you know, to, to respect the inherent dignity of everyone um, without seeing that that means that we therefore have to affirm falsehoods or we need to encourage people in harmful ideology. It was just earlier this week that I heard, um, you know, first person, I've seen the videos before, but I was in the audience while uh, Chloe Cole spoke about her experience um, going on puberty blocking drugs at age 13, going on testosterone a couple months after that, having a double mastectomy, I believe it was at age 16. And now she's 18 years old and she regrets it. Mm. Um, and she's detransitioned. And realizing that I want to respect her dignity throughout all different stages in that process that I just described, I don't think um, that the puberty blocking drugs, the cross-sex hormones, or the mastectomy was ever in her best interest. Uh, and so the challenge for us is, you know, how can we speak into this moment where it's both... Um, our rhetoric is both charitable and truthful. Mm. And I think we have to marry those two things together. And people go wrong by thinking, well, we want to be charitable, therefore we're not going to be truthful. Or, well, we're going to be truthful and therefore we should be bomb throwers. Right. Um, yeah. Particularly if you look at the second half of that sentence or quote that Case just read that says, while also doing everything possible to help them find wholeness and happiness. Well, right. to me, that becomes very difficult if you haven't shown respect and dignity on the front end. Um, so how do you help or walk alongside in the journey with someone and help them find wholeness and happiness. Um, and while we've been specifically talking about those who are transitioning, I think it would apply for the first three initials as well. Um, yeah. Yep. I mean, I, a couple of thoughts there. And, and, and some of this is what I've learned um, from talking with parents. Um, you know, so 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 in particular, focus on um, on on younger people who have struggled with gender dysphoria. You know, just what I've learned from listening um, to you know what parents um, who have successfully navigated this have done, and I think a couple of things, um, you know, kind of principles we can learn is one is that you need to maintain long term relationship. Um, you know, realize that none of this is going to be resolved or settled in like a one off conversation, uh, or, or you know, like. Um, the type of thing where you can make an ultimatum, it's either my way or the highway, it's either now or never. These are gonna be, um, uh, you know, in some cases, years long um, struggles and you wanna walk us beside people. And that means you need to be in long-term relationship with people. Um, 
And I think many of us know how to do this in other areas where we might disagree with someone or we might think someone's making a bad choice or we might think someone's um, doing something that's less than ideal. I mean, like we all have family members and friends um, who aren't perfect. Uh, I mean, that's just part of the human condition. Whoa, whoa. And, and so I don't think there, there needs to be, I don't think there needs to be anything unique in thinking about, all right, well, how do we um, navigate this when it's, you know, something dealing with human sexuality or something dealing with human identity, mm. or in this case, the, the intersection of those two things where human sexuality and human identity um, come together. So one is maintaining long-term uh, relationship. I would say two is um, never affirming a falsehood. Right? I mean, I think this is part of the um, universal Christian vocation. I would go so far as to say this is a universal human vocation. So something that's true for all of us, but particularly for Christians. I mean, like Christ himself says, you know, I came to bear witness to the truth. Uh, and so if we're disciples, if we're followers of Christ, part of our vocation is going to be to bear witness to the truth. Um, and so this would lead to, you know, difficult conversations at times where you would need to make clear to someone, um, look, I don't think this is actually in your best interest, but then you can also say, but we don't always have to talk about that. Right? I mean, I imagine many of us yeah. have friends where we've had those conversations where, look, I think whatever it is that you're doing is not healthy. It's not moral. It's not, you know, fill in the blank as to why we might disagree with it. But we're not always going to harp on it every time we see them. Yeah. So we just, you know, we just celebrated Christmas and Thanksgiving. Many of us got together with family members. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be um, a good family member if every time you see a relative with whom you have a disagreement about, you know, some aspect of the way they're leading their life. You always bring it up and you always, but at some point you probably do need to bring it up. Right? I mean, at one point it's going to be the right time to have that conversation. Um, so we want to bear witness to the truth. We don't want to affirm falsehoods, but we also need to maintain long-term relationship. And that might mean saying the conversation being, can you meet me halfway? So let's say, you know, something about like pronouns or a name. I know that's always, you know, a sticking point for, for people. You can say, look, I can't speak in a way that I believe is false. Um, you don't want me to speak in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable or alienated. Is there a third option? Right? Is there a way, um, you know, avoiding pronouns altogether? Can we agree to do that so that you know I won't use a pronoun that makes you feel uncomfortable, but you're not going to demand as a condition of our friendship that I use a pronoun that I think is false, partly because I think it's bad for you if I do that. Right? I mean, that that's the important thing I, I think um, um, to remember here is that it's not so much that well I I want clean hands. This is about like my purity. So I'm not going to speak falsely. The reason I don't want to speak falsely is precisely because if I speak falsely, it's harmful to you. It's harmful for other people mm. um, who hear, you know, my speech acts, right? So this is, you know, part of a friendship is that I owe you the truth. Mm. So anyway, those are a couple. Uh, and then I would say find lots of, so the, the fourth thing I, I would say is that find lots of other activities, common interests, shared um, uh, uh, things that you can do either as a family or as like a friend group, depending on, you know, wh where you are in your age that have nothing to do with this. Maybe you like going hiking. Maybe you like going fishing. Maybe you like going to concerts. Maybe you like going to museums. Maybe you like going drinking, whatever it is, right? You like going to bars and just talking or, Find or slaughtering lambs, you know, on your farm or slaughter. I mean, like whatever <laughs> the case may be, find a common interest that you can then, um, 
develop and have as like um, uh, um, the foundation of that relationship so that it's not the sticking point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. I really, and then the last thing I'll say is the the very last thing I'll say, and then I'm sorry, I'm uh, uh, going too long is that the reason I, I mentioned all of this is that it may be a year from now, two years from now, three years from now that your colleague at work has that aha moment, the way that Chloe Cole did, right? Says, wait a minute, like for the first three years, like, you know, I went on testosterone, I felt great, it energized me, I felt powerful, I felt secure. You know, I was in the honeymoon period of transitioning. Now, a couple years later, I'm having doubts about this. And then they say, oh, well, you know, Case, Case was the only guy at work whoever told me in a very charitable way that he thought I was making a mistake. He's never like beaten me up about it. He's never kind of like been a jerk about it, but he was the only one that ever, you know, urged me to have caution on this. Maybe I should now talk with him about these doubts that I'm having, right? And, you know, Case and I go fishing once a month. Like the next time we go fishing, I'm going to mention to him that I'm having some doubts as to whether or not transitioning uh, was actually good for me, right? So that's how you would see it kind of play out with that long-term relationship and why it's important that you not say, oh yeah, you know, I'm in favor of you transitioning. Mm. Cause then, mm. you know, who is it that they turn to, right? They, they, Cause like, it can also be very, um, uh, not, uh, I'm, I'm looking for a better word than embarrassing. It can be, um, it can be very difficult, um, partly because it's embarrassing, but partly because if you've gone through the transition, and you've asked all these loved ones, friends, family, coworkers to support you in your transition to now have to say, I made a mistake, right? Or I think I made a mistake. That can be hard, right? Right. Um, And that's why it's important that you have people, long-term relationships grounded in truth. And grace. So they actually feel vulnerable, Mm -hmm. that they they feel that they can be vulnerable with you. The grace and mercy. Without that judgment. Well, Ryan, so just this Christmas, uh, we gathered as a family and a guest was with us who had was in some degree of, of transition. And uh, prior to arrival, we had the pronoun conversation of what do we do? And this was a new experience uh, for our family Christmas. And I do feel that this individual left feeling very welcomed and um, uh, appreciated for their presence. But, you know, I didn't have that opportunity for that long-term relationship to really have the pronoun conversation. Now, let's get to the workplace where it is such a place that you may not have such the walk with an individual and the ability to have trust built. I've always said that the opportunity to share reproof or disagreement is sort of proportional to your relational investment. I can say things to my wife or, you know, Crossland and I are good friends. I could say things gently to Crossland, but only because of years of, of, of respect and trust that has been built there. Take us to the workplace. Um, where have you seen some of these issues uh, become problematic and been solved well or solved to the common good? And what Christ followers should think about in that? Yeah, so um, I don't know if I can point to any specific examples here that, um, that to my mind, have gone well. I mean, I, I think, I mean, we can all kind of point to like the headline stories of, you know, companies imposing preferred pronoun policies and um, people feeling in conscience that they couldn't comply and then losing jobs. I mean, think about some of the, I, I think some of the um, uh, most heartbreaking cases involve the teachers. 
who say, well, look, I can't use mm. a new pronoun um, because I don't think it's in the best interest of that particular student, nor all of the other students in my class, right? As an mm. authority figure, and you know, and, right. and that's a unique workplace, right? I mean, I, 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 a school's not kind of um, a typical workplace sure. because you know you're not always uh, um, in that authority position vis-a-vis your students. Um, but every one of those cases that I know of, uh, and I now know of, you know, a, a large handful, um, the teacher or the professor was willing to meet halfway. Right. They said, look, I'm not going to intentionally misgender someone. I'm not going to intentionally speak in a way that would make mm. this student feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But I also can't speak falsely uh, in a way that yeah. would lead all the other students and the student, him or herself. Well, um, it's the loss of freedom of conscience. You know? And so in one case, the guy was like, can I just not use pronouns? Right. Can I just, you know, just not use. And um, the, the, the teacher was told, no, like you actually have to use. Um, the new name and the preferred pronouns um, in case you wanted to jump in on that. Well, it's this loss of freedom of conscience, whether it's the transgender issue or not, which is even more scary to me. Uh, and when like right. workplaces require the pronouns at the bottom of an email um, that, yep. uh, well, I don't, I know that the, I don't know that a lot of Christians are prepared for how to manage the freedom of conscience issues on any number of things. Yeah. And there, there's a really good essay by um, an evolutionary biologist, Colin Wright. Um, he, he, he's not a believer as far as I know, uh, although he's not hostile um, to people of faith. Um, and he, um, he wrote an essay, I believe it was for the Wall Street Journal, and then it's been republished on his um, website called Reality's Last Stand. Yes. Uh, where he just says, you know, in general, not just that we shouldn't use preferred pronouns, but also if someone asks you, what are your preferred pronouns, you shouldn't go along with um, that entire kind of like right. idiom, right. because it, it's predicated on a certain worldview, right? It's predicated That's on right. a certain ideology in which pronouns are conventional uh, and they don't correspond to an underlying reality. I was at the doctor's right? office so, the other day and I had to fill out paperwork and it asked me preferred pronouns and I didn't fill it out. And I wondered if I, they might yeah. come back and ask, um, what, what would you do, Ryan, if you were asked to Yep, I, I think that's exactly. I mean, I think what you what you just described um, is a is a is is one good way of doing it, right? Because that way you're not even making a fuss about it; you're just leaving it blank. Yep. Um, and a, another way is you can say, "Look, I don't think pronouns are preferred." Um, you know, you, you could actually write that in. Uh, that would be um, a little more confrontational, and so partly that would depend on you know your comment from I don't know five minutes ago, where you said you know it's a direct proportional relationship mm -hmm. to how much you've invested in the relationship to how much pushback so you're you at work offer. this is your first time seeing the doctor mm -hmm. what say, say it again so you're at work and the oh, i was saying this, what do you do there if the hr department says this is the new email standard yeah i mean i think there if um that's tough uh it depends on how long you've been there it depends on um your um, facility to find a new job. If they make this, if you don't do this, you'll be fired mm. um, because you know not everyone has um, that luxury, right? And this is where I, I don't want to kind of speak in a very prescriptive way That's right. That's right. Um, for people who, um, I mean, because, because like, we're, we're, the final outcome here could be, you know, employment termination. And so you don't want yeah. to um, counsel someone to, 
you know, go into something where that could be the outcome uh, if they're not prepared for it. But I do think this will be something that the church will need to um, help people with is almost like a theology of being fired. Sure. Um, you know, wow. what are the red lines great. that you definitely cannot cross, but you shouldn't seek martyrdom, right? If martyrdom comes to you, you should, you know, accept it, but you shouldn't seek it out, right? Yeah. And and this is where, you know, it'd be very context dependent of like, how well do you know your immediate manager, right? So maybe you don't know the people at HR, but you know your immediate mm. boss mm. and mm. you have the heart to heart with your boss and you say, look, I can't, you know, put my pronouns in my email signature. Um, maybe you say, look, I can go along with that, but I can't go any further. Mm. Right? I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with me saying my pronouns are he and him, uh, his. Um, although, again, like I, ideally, I, I don't even think we should go that far because I think to even do that, it's to participate in almost like a liturgy, a, a ritual, a, um, a new kind of like secular ritual that embodies a certain secular ideology right, with right. a secular worldview um, that you know we don't want to be reinforcing. Well, and I would think, how nice would it be if your company might have a freedom of conscience perspective or a, hey, put them if you want, right. don't if you don't want. Uh, might your pushback, if you're an employee, help them to recognize this is a freedom of conscience issue? And maybe that's even a way to frame it with a boss rather than to go, I'm against the transgender movement. You know, it, it's not about that so much as it is. I'm feeling forced to do something that fundamentally disagrees with my core beliefs. And especially if like, I mean, so let's say you don't know the HR people very well, but your immediate supervisor um, is, you know, a fan of you. Like you're, you're a good employee. You do good work. You have a good rapport. You explain this um, to your immediate supervisor and maybe there are other people, right? So you, you, you actually have a, um, like an affinity group for, you know, maybe there's a Bible study at your workplace, or maybe there's, you, you know, who the other um, believers are that might have a conscientious objection to this. And maybe it's a more powerful um, uh, 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 concern to raise if all of you go together to HR and you have someone sure. else in management who's a little bit higher than you, who's kind of guiding you on the best way of approaching it. Because um, you're right, it could be that this is a, um, a freedom of conscience issue. It could be that this is a religious liberty issue. Um, not everyone who objects to this, you know, Colin Wright himself is not Christian and he would right, object right. to this, right? So this is a I conscientious um, question, not a, yeah. Oh, so you've read, yeah, I think, I think he does a lot of really good work. He really does. And for our listeners, I will put that article in the show notes. If it's Wall Street Journal, it may have a paywall, but um, so I'm, I'm curious. Then... Yeah, but then I think he has reprinted it on his site. Um, okay. I, I believe that's the case. That, that, yeah. So that, you know, that way you can, yeah. I think like after 30 days, the journal right. allows people right. to, um, reprint. Yeah. yeah. I've experienced that. Um, so I wonder, do I hear you saying, and this is your specialty and at the EPPC that, um, perhaps a religious liberty case might come up before the courts on some of the things being asked of the rest of us in order to endorse this alternative anthropology and worldview. Definitely. And some of them already have, and I'm trying to remember, um, some of them have already been settled. So there's the Meriwether case, um, a philosophy professor somewhere. Um, I, I want to say maybe it was Wisconsin. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact details, but that was an Alliance defending freedom case and it involved a professor 
um, who said, you know, he just wasn't going to use pronouns. You know, he, he wasn't going to use either a pronoun that made the student feel uncomfortable, nor was he going to use a pronoun that he thought was um, false to reality and therefore a bad witness to other students. And if I remember correctly, ADF won that case uh, and the school system had to pay. And I, and I can't remember if that was a free speech case or a religious liberty case, because there's also a concern here of coerced speech and, and, and forced speech violates um, the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Um, and, and I believe mm -hmm. he worked for a public university. So it was a government institution. The government can't force you to speak contrary um, to what you believe. Uh, there have also been cases, um, Peter Vlaming uh, was a, I think, a high school teacher in Virginia. Um, Tanner Cross was a kindergarten and uh, grade school uh, physical education teacher. Um, he's, uh, they ended up having to sue the Loudoun County School Board because Tanner spoke simply as a citizen. It wasn't even in the context of his employment. He, he spoke at a school board meeting saying, look, I'm a teacher in the Loudoun County schools. I think this new transgender policy that you're imposing would be bad for my students. Mm -hmm. And then he was uh, uh, dismissed from his job. And so ADF again represented him. So we've already had some of these cases. And if I remember correctly, ADF has won all these cases so far. Wow. But I also, if I remember correctly, they've all been in the context of government employer, uh, right? And, and when the government is your employer, whether a university or a K through 12, the First Amendment applies. Got it. Uh, when it's a private employer, Title VII applies, and there's the, you know, you, you can't discriminate on the basis of religion, and you have to offer reasonable accommodations because of religion. But then we're going to have debates about, you know, what is, how, how wide or how narrow do the courts interpret what constitutes discrimination and what constitutes reasonable mm -hmm. accommodations? And how does that then apply um, to something like a speech code in the workplace? Well, and then I feel a responsibility on myself as a pastor to help my people know, okay, this is what a Christian anthropology is, and this is the other views being held out there, and then how do they come together well or run into each other, and how do we manage that in love? Yeah. And this is also where, I mean, so like, I think it's so, I love what you just said. It's vitally important that pastors um, teach their congregations truths about Christian anthropology. It strikes me that right now, our biggest cultural, political, legal disagreements are really about anthropology, really right? Whether it's about the beginning of life, the unborn child in the womb, or the end of life. Look, look at what's sure. happening in Canada right now. Um, those are th those touch on anthropology, the dignity of the human person, debates about marriage, human sexuality, debates about gender identity and our embodiment. These are all yeah. anthropological questions. And these are some of the most difficult, you know, cultural policy, legal questions. Sure. And, and so it's vitally important that you as a pastor and that other pastors who are listening, um, you know, you, you equip your flock, you prepare them, uh, you nourish them on these things. And then the other thing I was going to add is that it's also important that we see that um, kind of a, a reasonable pluralism would need to, at the very least, um, make room for people who believe the truth about uh, human anthropology. Hmm. I mean, I, I think sometimes um, people who use uh, and you really emphasize language of pluralism um, end up giving short shrift to uh truthful positions on these debates, right? Any pluralism what worth its name is at least going to have space uh, for employees who hold the truth on these issues. And so if you're um, either on the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the spectrum, you're saying that, you know, I'm about pluralism, 
if your pluralism doesn't include Tanner Cross, Peter Vlaming, uh, Professor, um, uh, uh, I think it was Merriweather, uh, yeah, um, then it's not a real pluralism, right? Yeah. And, I, and I think we've seen that uh, happening as well. Uh, in order to be pluralistic, we need to be relativistic, and therefore we need to exclude people who make serious truth claims. Sure, sure. Well, I saw that so demonstrated. So I was at Princeton Seminary before you were at the university, and it was when Peter Sanger came on staff, who is a yep. radical philosopher in the, the direction of utilitarianism. And uh, I had a friend at the seminary who was a Christian pastor, or on his way to be one, and he was... Um, he united, he had an organization and he united with an, a group of disability advocates and the name of their group was mm -hmm. not dead yet. And it was a pretty, uh, yeah, it's a great group. confronting, you know, a pretty powerful name to say, look, we matter. And they chained themselves yeah. around the university administration building <laughs> and oh, wow. protested. I haven't heard uh, that Sang story. Sanger's appointment. Yeah. And, and it was such a interesting pluralistic combination because there were far left wingers who had a uh, perspective on disability rights along then with uh, evangelical Christians uh, very much objecting to this yeah. fierce utilitarian view. And uh, that was, to me, a, a beautiful pluralism. Yep. And um, that coalition still exists. I've spoken with um, representatives from, from the group Not Dead Yet. Um, I mean, it's the 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 movement opposing the assisted suicide laws, the euthanasia laws. To my mind, that that's a pluralism at its best because it's it's not just conservative Christians, it's not just disability rights. It's it's a whole panoply of people who recognize that if the law allows um, certain people to be legally killed, um, it's going to disproportionately harm the least amongst us, people with disabilities. Uh, people who are already on the peripheries of life, uh, people who um, whose lives and abilities aren't as highly valued by the market as people who go to Princeton. Right? I mean, you can see how um, this is going to disproportionately impact those who are already uh, marginalized by society. They're going to be the sure. ones told that their life isn't worth living. They're better off dead. Um yeah. And a phony pluralism would say, well, if you want to die and I want to kill you, why can't we just have a law that allows to have markets and killing? Right. I mean, yeah, all of these right. things have to have limits. And, you know, one of those bright line limits is that um, we don't buy and sell babies and we don't have so we don't have markets in humans. We don't have markets when it comes to right. slavery. We also don't have markets when it comes to killing. Right. And, and I think all of those things would be unreasonable forms mm. of pluralism mm -hmm. um, because they violate a really foundational bedrock principle about anthropology, mm. about natural law, about uh, about human dignity, whether the beginning of life, the end of life, or the whole continuum um, of life. Yeah, I think we seriously misjudge what happens when we lose the dignity of life. Um, we're talking about transgender issues, but then it's so easy as that to see how that relates to the abortion and the euthanasia issues as well. Um, yeah. But I want to go back to sort of this practical conversation we were having and think about it from an employer standpoint or from someone who's in a position to influence what a company does. I think the, yeah. 
gender pronoun signaling in the email footers in some ways is just low hanging fruit as a way to go, look, we can just do this and satisfy things. What are some more thoughtful and meaningful things that can be done by a company that would show um, uh, an equality, if you will, thinking about private business, not government institutions. Yeah, yeah. no, great question. I mean, I'd so, love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. I mean, so um, um, l- let me start by saying, so let's say you're you're the Christian CEO of a business, right? And so you want to, you, you want to, I mean, so like take Jack Phillips, you know, he, he's more well-known, um, you know, he, he, he's masterpiece cake shop. He couldn't do a cake celebrating a right. same-sex wedding. The reason he names his company masterpiece cake shop is both because he's creating masterpieces of art, but also he's very clear. It's, it's from the passage of the gospel where Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters, God and mammon. Right. And so he says in my business, I want to serve God. And I want to make a profit, right? In businesses, I need to make money to support my family. I need my employees to make money. But we're going to do it in a way that honoring God is not just about one hour a week on Sunday morning. It's about what I do hmm. Monday morning through Saturday night as well. Right? So I think he has Preach. the right theology of work. Um, a couple of thoughts. One is that, you know, if you're the employer, your healthcare plan probably should not, not only probably, your healthcare plan should not cover uh, sex reassignment procedures, or now they're called gender affirmation uh, procedures, because it's bad medicine, right? And so this touches, you know, like we were talking about with the assisted suicide debate, it's bad medicine to have doctors um, killing their patients or assisting in the suicides of their patients. It's bad medicine um, to have, um, you know, a man taking estrogen, to have a woman having a double mastectomy, or to be doing this for the children of your employees. I mean, so think about it, like one of the reasons why uh, an employer provides various benefits is to actually support the authentic well-being of their employees. Uh, and so it's not in your employee's best interest um, uh, to have these various um, procedures performed on their bodies or the bodies of their dependents, right? The bodies of their children. Um, and so this is similar to what we saw in the Hobby Lobby lawsuit where the Green family said, well, look, there are four mandated drugs and devices that could cause an abortion. We can't right. do that. It's unethical right. for us to provide health insurance that could kill an unborn baby. In the same way, I think um, the employer should say, we can't provide health insurance that would pay um, to attempt to do something that's impossible, um, turn a boy into a girl or a girl into sure. a boy. Um, if you have locker rooms at work, if you have bathrooms at work, um, they should be based on biological reality, right? The The embodiment of... Um, your employee. I mean, that's why we have separate facilities, right? It's to provide a a modicum of privacy and of safety when we're in a state of undress in the locker room, a state of kind of, you know, intimate bodily functions in the bathroom. Um, That's why we do it. And that's why we don't, thank God, have separate bathrooms or locker rooms based on race any longer, right? Our skin color, our racial and ethnic heritage have nothing to do with what we do in a bathroom or our locker room. Our embodiment as male and female has quite a bit to do. Right? And that's why we have separate male and female, boy and girl uh, locker room bathrooms, but not any longer um, black and white. Now, that said, I do think it's entirely reasonable um, for you to say for any employee who desires additional privacy, we could have single occupancy facilities. 
right? This is yeah. a very, to my mind, uh, relatively low cost. I mean, it is going to cost something and not everyone can do this, but if you are going to be doing a, um, a renovation project of your workplace, creating a single occupancy facility, um, for anyone who desires more privacy, right? For people who don't want to use a, a communal sure. restroom or communal locker room. And that could be, if you have a, a, a employee who identifies as transgender, you know, they could use the single occupancy facility. Likewise, if you have a dress code, um, maybe you try to, um, I, I think it would be a problem if you say to an employee who identifies as transgender that you can dress using the opposite dress code. But maybe you have the dress codes um, uh, have kind of an overlapping area where, you know, anyone could wear um, slacks and a, a button down. I mean, I, I think a woman could be wearing the same shirt I'm wearing and more or less the same pants that I, I mean, so you could, you could structure it so that, um, you know, you don't want men wearing dresses. Um, you probably, you know, but, but you could have, um, uh, uh, enough overlap between the male and female dress codes that you aren't um, uh, kind of causing any scandal or causing any problems there. This brings up another ADF case, which was the funeral home director, where you had a male who wanted to come to work according to um, uh, uh, a female dress code, you know, more or less like wearing um, uh, a dress, right? Rather sure. than wearing, you know, in his case, he was the funeral director wearing a dark suit and a tie. Um, you want to avoid that, right? You, you, I don't think it would be um, uh, acceptable for a Christian business owner to say to, especially to a grieving family, this this employee was going to take a two week leave of absence and then come back um, uh, uh, in female clothing. Like, I don't see how that would be fair to grieving families um, interfacing with a funeral director who's cross dressing, right? And it would be obviously a cross dressing situation because in two weeks, you know. There wouldn't have been either enough hormone therapy or plastic surgery in the world to have that individual pass as a woman, right? Um, so those are a couple initial thoughts. I mean, I don't think you should do anything with preferred pronouns or with, you know, email footers um, or things like that. Mm. Mm. Ryan, thank you. This has been tremendous. I um, am a bit overwhelmed at the number of issues, but I'm very grateful we have thought leaders such as yourself who are helping us digest and understand how we ultimately represent the Lord and love people and love them towards truth. And um, it's hard, but I'm grateful for you. Yeah, thank you. No, and I, I'm, I appreciate the fact that you're devoting one of the episodes. I mean, lots of people who would be doing theology of work would be a, a, avoiding this set of topics. Um, yeah. And so it's really good that um, you guys are uh, addressing it because I think these are increasingly going to be some of the most difficult um, issues for Christians to navigate faithfully. Mm -hmm. It's actually our whole season, yeah, whole season, not just one episode. So oh, I, we do this podcast great. seasonally. There'll be six episodes this spring that'll be dedicated to gender identity issues at kind of all different levels. That's wonder. I mean, wow. So I, I, I was assuming that, you know, this season was on difficult issues at work and just one was going to be on yeah. the gender identity stuff, but six of them, <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's really good to, um, you know, give people as many different orthodox um, perspectives, you know, of how to navigate this. Cause it also requires a lot of prudence and a lot of prayer, yeah, yeah. right? This isn't like a, 
you know, a, just read it off of a sheet and then like apply it. Um, every situation it's context dependent of how do I bring these, um, how do I bring truth and love to bear in my circumstances? Um, and my spiritual well-being informs my ability to do that. So yeah, huge onus on ourselves. Well, friends, you can, um, find Ryan on Twitter, and I would encourage you follow it. He has precious children. They live lots of great adventures on the farm. You can also go to eppc.org for more information on the Ethics and Pellet Policy Center and a lot of the great work they're doing. Ryan, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Wow, Crossland. <laughs> I'm just a, a bit overwhelmed. Uh, that was a a good but intense conversation. And, and I noticed how he had a really different view on pronouns than Andy Crouch did. He did. If people listened last week, or if you haven't, I would really encourage you to go back. Uh, we talked with Andy Crouch and he had a different take on the pronoun issue. And I think that just says this is complex. Mm. It's yeah. hard. And there are there is room in some of these different aspects for liberty and freedom. And I think, you know, hospitality is going to rule the day in some cases. Yeah. And then in other cases, maybe not. Well, and I've increased in my teaching lately saying this, that certainly scripture is very black and white on a lot of big things. Uh, but then there's a whole lot of gray that is where wisdom and discernment comes in. And how are we as the church helping people grow in their wisdom and discernment? I certainly hope this uh, podcast is such a gift to some in that direction. But wisdom is taking the truth of God, putting it in a particular context and situation, and um, finding the the true, the good, and the beautiful in that. And sometimes it's it's a bit different at times. And sometimes I can throw others if they have a very black and white view of Christianity, but that's really the lived experience and certainly way I hear Paul write about a lot of things and even the Old Testament writers. And certainly this issue requires a great Mm. deal of discernment and wisdom. And as scripture says, you know, wisdom is from the Lord. And so we need to be taking our own hearts and minds before him and asking for wisdom on these mm-hmm. particular issues. It's early in the conversation. A hundred years from now, the church will have a much more robust, mature uh, view, as I believe a lot has been developed in the LGBT conversation, as well as previous issues of previous centuries, you know, race and yes. slavery and... um men and women's issues and all the other things that we touch on in the public square. Well, that's what I love doing here. And that's what I love doing with you. So thanks so much for being with me. Great to be here. So first I just want to start off with a prayer of confession. I know that in some circles, there can be a lot of snickering and, and jokes about the transgender movement and folks that are genuinely suffering from gender dysphoria. And I think confession's a great place to start. Ryan said, opposing trans ideology is not permission. 
to demean or ridicule. So let us pause for a moment and pray and confess however we may have participated in such words or activities. We certainly want to be people that lead in the way of love, so let us pray for those who have been impacted by gender dysphoria, by the transgender options that are out there, and to hope that they know the goodness and grace of the Lord. And finally, I just pray for wisdom, Lord, for myself, for all of us. They were listening here that we would know your word and be open to your Holy Spirit's guidance and how to be your people in this world. Hear us, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Help us spread the word about nuance. Please like the episode, subscribe to our podcast, and share our link so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative and is made possible by the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Foundation. On behalf of Case Thorpe and myself, thank you for joining the conversation.